Jesus, we just thank you so much that you are God in heaven and that you are mighty, that you are holy, that you are awesome, and yet you see us. God, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would minister to us, that you would be speaking to us, that your grace and your love would draw us to yourself. And in your grace and love, Jesus, we pray that you would humble us. Father, we need you. We need you every day. We need you every moment. So today, Lord, we lay our hearts bare before you and ask, Holy Spirit, may you show us what's in our heart. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. And in your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. A couple weeks ago, I was on vacation out in BC as well, and I had the opportunity to hike the West Coast Trail with a couple of my friends. This was an incredible experience. I love hiking, I love getting out, being in nature and the challenge of it all. And on our second day, you know, we were feeling pretty good. We're like, oh yeah, we're, we're killing this thing. This is awesome. You know, and we got to go out onto the beach and we're climbing over these rocks and these boulders and everything. And we were told that it was pretty slippery and we're like, okay, well, we need to make sure that we're careful. So after a couple hours have gone by, we're like feeling really good, like, we're killing this thing. We're just rocking it. And we're going. And then we come to this spot. We've been looking for a beach access to get back up into the, onto the trail in the bush. And so we're watching, and we see something hanging from the trees. And that's what you're supposed to look for when you're on the beach. So we see this, and we're like, that must be the beach access. So we're walking up to it, and all of a sudden, we see this sign hanging there with this massive frame thing, and we don't know why it was there. Well, I think it was to draw attention to a sign that was there, and it says, danger, do not enter. We're like, what? Like, what are we even entering? We're just like on the beach, you know, and on this shelf. It's just this massive slab of rock. We're like, what are they talking about? And of course, we're kind of being like a little bit arrogant. We're like, we're doing good, you know. We haven't slipped at all. We're fine. And we're like, what are they even talking about? So we keep going, and we see another sign bolted to the rock. It says, danger, do not enter. We're like, well, I think the curiosity kind of kicked in at this point. And I haven't told my parents this either yet, so um, <laughs> that's why I break it to them now. Um, so uh, we're going along, and we see this kind of black, um, it looks slippery or something. It's on the rock, and it's about, you know, 20 feet wide. It's not even that long. We're like, well, it can't be that bad. So I, I'm kind of leading, and I get out there. I've got my poles. I'm like, I, I feel okay. I'm about halfway across, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, whoa, and boom, I just like do the full fall. I've got 40 pounds on my back, and I start sliding down this rock face, and the, the girls are silent. I'm silent. I'm like, whoa, and then uh, finally, I'm able to stop. I probably said tw slid 12 feet or something, and I just had mud up the back of my, uh, my butt and my legs and, and my backpack, everything, and I'm like, Oh, Lord, thank you. <laughs> because if I would have slid the entire way, there's these massive rocks at the bottom. I'm sure I would have broken a limb or something. And I'm like, that would have been so embarrassing. Yeah, I broke a leg on the West Coast Trail on the second day because we ignored the signs that said, danger, do not enter. And it's actually on the map. We just looked over all of it. You know, thankfully, God didn't allow me to break a leg, and I was okay, and stopped myself, and got off, and the girls went down and around, but you know, I share this story to kind of give you an illustration, a physical uh, illustration of what I want to talk about today. You know, in scripture, it says that pride comes before a fall. You know, we were getting pretty arrogant, <laughs> and that fall made us watch our step a little bit more, and listen to the, the instruction that was on the trail, because it's for our good. 
you know, in the same way spiritually, sometimes we get going and we think, man, I'm doing pretty good. I'm rocking it with God. We're just doing this, and this is awesome. And then all of a sudden, we find ourselves flat on our face. You know, pride comes before a fall, but humility, with humility, that's where wisdom is found. You know, I think it's pretty safe to say in this room that everyone wants to live life well. Everyone has that desire. Every parent desires to raise kids who are mature, competent citizens who live life well. No one starts out life wanting to fail or be evil or a little scoundrel. No one marries with the desire to divorce in the end. No, everybody wants to live life well. But the question is, how do we live life well? What does that look like? What must we do in order for this life to make sense or to have meaning? Who must we become in order to be important or make a difference? You know, Pastor Paul shared last week, and I want to reiterate what he said, is that the one thing we need in order to become and do the right things is we need wisdom. We need wisdom. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is the practical application of truth. It's not only knowing what's good and right, but then it's knowing how to apply that into my life, how to live it out day by day. But even more than the practical application of truth, wisdom is a person and his name is Jesus. That's what we talked about last week a little bit. And we need to come to Jesus. You know, in ancient Near Eastern uh, thought or philosophy or whatever, uh, wisdom was in connection with the creator as well as the king. So you think about the creator. Okay, the creator created the world. Therefore, if he created it, he must know how to live in the world well. He must know what that looks like. Therefore, he would have wisdom. And they associated the king with the creator or a divine being because they thought if the king is wise, the cosmos or the nature will be beneficial. It will bless them because he's in control. You think of Pharaoh, right? They thought Pharaoh was divine. Pharaoh himself thought he was divine. All of a sudden, when the, Egypt, or the Israelites are coming out, they're showing, look, Pharaoh has no control. He's not divine. He's not wise. So in order for us to get wisdom, we need to come to the creator God who is our risen king. Jesus is a God almighty in flesh. He's wisdom in flesh. He came to this earth and he showed, look, I know how to live life well. I showed it to you. Now follow me. So what must we do in order to get wisdom? Just like salvation, we just need to ask. We just need to ask when we come to Jesus. And for salvation, he sa it says in Romans, believe. Just believe and you'll be saved. Confess with your mouth and you'll be saved. You know, in the same way for wisdom, James says, if anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives generously to anybody. In Proverbs, we're encouraged to pursue wisdom above all else. We need wisdom to live life well. So what does that require of us? It requires us humbling ourselves. Because if we are asking for wisdom, we're actually acknowledging and saying, I don't know it all. I can't do this. I can't control everything. God, I need your wisdom. I am not wise. I need your wisdom. It requires humility. Acknowledging he is infinite and we are finite. 
Therefore, if I can pronounce right off the hop this morning, if there's anything I want to leave with you today is that if we want to live life well, we need to humble ourselves. You know, the past couple weeks I've been reading through Chronicles, and a lot of times we look at the Old Testament or Chronicles and think, well, it doesn't apply to us. We're in the New Covenant, or, or we think it's boring, but I can't say it's any further from the truth. Man, the Old Testament is full of, of amazing things, people that we can learn from, and we see God's great patience and his loving character over and over and over again. A lot of people look at the Old Testament and think, well, all I see is an angry God. Well, then you haven't studied very hard. Because all I see after studying through college and continuing, I love the Old Testament. That's why I took Hebrew. I love it. All I see is God's patience and his grace saying, come back to me. Come back to me. Even the exile was out of his grace. He wrote it out at the very beginning in the covenant in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 to 30 and 32. He said, look, if you obey me, this is what will happen. I will bless you. But if you disobey me, there are going to be consequences. He wasn't unjust in punishing the nation. It was actually gracious. You know, you think about it a little bit more. And, and Jesus, he even says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the Old Testament. Rather, I came to fulfill it. If we want to know what Jesus did, if we want to understand why he came, we need to understand the Old Testament. That's what he came to fulfill. You know, as I've been reading through, I've so enjoyed it as God has been challenging me in my life, in my leadership, based on the king's lives. Because every king that he lists, they're kind of summed up at the beginning and the end of their, their little narrative part in the story. And it, basically, he gives this summary as to whether or not they lived life well. And the way that he evaluated it, the chronicler evalu evaluated if they lived life well or not, was whether they were humble or not. Humility in the sense that they sought God. They obeyed God's commands. They worshiped him. So today I want to address this question of how do we live life well? And I want to say that the only way to live life well is to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves in prosperity, in testing, in failure. Why? So that we can be connected with the source of life, the creator of the world. So where are we today? You know, if you want to turn to 2 Chronicles, that's where we'll be flipping around today. We'll spend quite a bit of time. And as you turn there, I just want to touch a little bit on this book. Um, some people think Chronicles is just another account of what Samuel and Kings presents. But like every other book in the Bible, it's written with a spe specific purpose to a particular group of people for a certain reason. There's a very overarching theme and, and message through First and Second Chronicles. You know, it's not this dry history. It's this living recount intended to invite us into his story. You know, Chronicles was written in the, to a post-exilic people, the Jewish people. So in 587 BC, the nation of Israel, or Jude, Jerusalem, was totally destroyed. They went into exile. But because of God's great grace, who promised restoration in the covenant, he says, I'm going to bring you back in 70 years. So 70 years, or during that 70 years, the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians, and then Cyrus, he becomes king or ruler, and he issues this decree, okay, Jews, you're going to go back to Jerusalem, and you're going to rebuild your temple. This was crazy. The Jews would have been so excited. But as soon as they get back to Jerusalem, all of a sudden they realize there's no temple. There's nothing. We're destitute. We're just a little sliver of what was left of what we were before. 
and their hope started to turn into hopelessness. They were wondering, does God still care? Does his covenant still stand? Is he still with us, present with us? So the chronicler is writing to them to say, look, the covenant still stands. Look, God still loves you. He's still with you. Don't despair. And he's writing them to remind them, look, obey God. Walk in humility. He's reminding them to walk and live out what Micah said, to walk in justice and mercy and humbly before your God. So for us as new covenant people, though, this still applies because sometimes we wonder, does God still hear me? Does he still care? Does his love still exist? Am I still in his grace and in his mercy? And I want to say yes. God still cares. He still loves you. He still has good in store for you. But there's one thing that can ruin our relationship with him, and I believe that's pride. Pride that leads to self-sufficiency, anxiety, sin, and ultimately destruction. This message that was written to the post-exilic time applies to us today. So the first point in, ask, in answering how do we live life well is by humbling ourselves in prosperity. You know, some have said that pride is a link to the original sin, and that being because Adam had everything. He had everything he could have wanted, and yet he still sinned. And why did he sin? It was when he stopped believing in God's goodness and he doubted what God commanded. He elevated his own opinion over what God had commanded and thought, I should be like God. Pride was there. Pride was Adam's downfall. And a lot of times, I think it's our downfall. He thought he knew better. You know, in the, in the Hebrew language, a lot of times they use figurative language to describe the spiritual sense. And the words that are used for pride talk about height or to be high, to be up there. You're elevating yourself. You know, basically pride is when we think we have it all figured out. We listen to our own wisdom rather than God's commands. And I know I should maybe present positive um, stories about how to resist pride, but I think it's really necessary this morning, first off, to listen how pride destroys us. So if we turn really quick, there's a couple of examples in Second Chronicles to see how it leads to our downfall. And Uzziah is the first one that I want to touch on. Uzziah, in, verse, or in chapter 26, uh, it says this in verses 3 and 4. It says, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. So usually when a king reigned for a long time, that said that they were righteous. So he must have been doing something right. His mother's name was Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. It looks like he's off to this great start. He becomes sick, or king when he's 16. He's doing awesome things. He's seeking God. He's worshiping him. He's doing the right stuff. But later on, we read that pride was his downfall. In verse 16 to 21, let me just read this. It says, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah, the priest, with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him in, and they confronted him. Now I know why they were courageous priests, because they were coming up to the king who had the power and said, look, you can't be in here. 
You can't be in here. You see, Uzziah, all of a sudden, he, he was doing a lot of good. He was like rocking it. He was killing it. He was like, this is awesome, you know? And he thinks, all of a sudden, I'm powerful enough that God's commands or uh, laws don't apply to me. See, the only one who could go in and burn incense was the priest. But he thought, that doesn't apply to me. I'm the king. But he goes in, and these priests confront him and said, it is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. I don't know about you, but I totally relate to this. Because when I'm confronted with my sin and my pride, a lot of times I get angry. I get even more prideful, which is not the right, right response. If he would have humbled himself right here, I'm sure God would have been gracious. But instead, he got angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. This is the tragic part. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous, and excluded from the temple of the Lord. Uzziah started out really good, but pride was his downfall. And pride led to a disease that led to his death. And the most tragic part, I think, is that that disease kept him from the presence of the Lord. He couldn't enter into the temple because he was unclean. I don't know about you, but I don't want to become prideful and end life not well. I want to live life well. I want to live life well, and I need to be humble. Where are you guys at? Yes, sometimes we think, well, Amy, you're young, you're doing fine, you're 27. You know what? The pride creeps in very gradually and is so deadly. I don't want to end up like this, to start off well and to end miserably. The other quick example that I want to look at is Josiah. I love the story of Josiah. It's in 2 Chronicles 34. And he was an amazing king. You know, 34 verses 1 and 2, we read that Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. You know, Josiah was a great king. He did a lot of really good. You know, when he was eight, he became king. And when he was 16, he started to seek the Lord. When he was 20, he started to purify the land. When he was 26, he started to purify and rebuild the temple. And then he found the book of the law, the Lord's book, and he reads it, and his humility is so beautiful. He rips his robes and he cries out, God, we've sinned. And then after that, he follows God. He seeks him. He celebrates the Passover in such extravagance. It's amazing. But later on in Josiah's life, at the end, the Egyptian army is coming through Israel to go make war against another nation. And God had ordained this. If Josiah would have humbled himself and asked, God, should we go make war against this nation, against Egypt, God, I'm pretty sure, would have spoken and said, no, this is from my hand. But Josiah didn't humble himself to ask, God, what do you want? Instead, he thought, let's go out 
Let's go fight Egypt. And that's where he died in battle. A tragic death. A brutal ending. A waste. Josiah, yeah, he's still remembered as a righteous king. But pride can lead to our downfall. I don't know about you, but I really want to live life well. And that requires humility. Yes, in this time, they lived in, in this old covenant of retribution theology in a sense, where if they mess up, there's consequences, a lot of times pretty significant consequences right away. But as we see in Job through Pastor Paul's series in Job, we see that God operates a lot of times out of grace. Not, he's not waiting. You know, I used to have this friend in elementary school, and she used to think that God was waiting, watching, just waiting for us to mess up so that he could flick us. That's not God. That's an image from our culture. That's not our God. Our God is gracious. You know, if we humble ourselves, he will hear. He will forgive. He is good. He's gracious. But can I challenge us today to humble ourselves? You know, um, it's not like we're going to go into the temple to burn incense or war against another nation. But through reading and studying this, and reading, these are just two examples. I could, like, I challenge you, read through First and Second Chronicles. You'll see how often pride and humility comes into play. You know, the thing, though, that I recognized in this is that prosperity breeds pride. That's the context that breeds this pride. And I don't, know, I don't know about you, but that makes me shudder because we live in a culture that's so affluent, that's very rich, that's very prosperous. And if that context breeds pride, where am I at? It's kind of caught me off guard a little bit these past number of weeks as God's been checking my own heart and challenging me, Amy, are you, are you prideful? Or are you walking in humility? So what does pride look like in our culture? Maybe it's relying on our own ability to work and make money. Maybe it's relying on our strength to make money. I'm not saying that it's bad to make money. God blesses people and work is good. But if that's what we're relying on rather than in God, that's a form of pride. Are we, are we listening to him, what he says in Malachi when he says, Test me in this and see if I won't open up the floodgates of heaven and bless you. He's talking about tithes and offerings. Are we trusting God with our finances or are we relying on our own strength in this prosperous context, society that we live in? Maybe it's relying in your own physical strength. I can do this. I'm tough. I can do this. What happens if leprosy breaks out? What happens if you break a leg? You know, life happens sometimes. Where are you putting your trust? Because that can be a form of pride. You know, maybe you're deciding what's right and what's wrong rather than seeking what God actually says in Scripture. In 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul says, you know, a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. You see this in culture. You see this in our um, ignorance regarding the sexual wave that's coming across and sweeping our culture. You see that in pornography. You see that in, oh, it's okay to live together before you're married. Or dare I say it, 
but you see it in what we chose as a nation 10 years ago and what the states have just issued or, or made okay, gay marriage. Is that just what we want to hear? Because it sounds loving? What does scripture say? Are we elevating our own desires over what God has said? Because it's a big deal. Pride leads to destruction. Yes, God is gracious, but it eventually will eat us alive if we never humble ourselves. You know, this past week, as I've been studying, 1 Peter 5 all of a sudden became so much more clear. As Peter urges the church, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand so that he may lift you up. He continues on and says that um, we have an enemy who's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. All of a sudden it made sense why those two things are connected. If we don't humble ourselves, the enemy is smart and he knows that in prosperity and in pride, that's when we're weakest. And that's when he can do what he came to do to kill, destroy, and steal. Am I humbling myself? Am I watching myself, especially in this context of prosperity? Another point that this, this chapter in 1 Peter points out that we tend to overlook as pride is anxiety. You know, it says to cast all of our cares or our anxieties upon God. Why? Because he cares for us. You know, um, for many of us, I think maybe we're fooling ourselves thinking we're in control. And this is my form of pride. I'm a control freak. But the reality is, I can't control anything or anyone, but I like to think I can. <laughs> but what is starting to reveal, what God's starting to reveal to me is that when I start to get stressed and anxious, it's showing me I'm not trusting God. And I'm letting anxiety come in, and I'm letting, I'm walking out in pride rather than humility, saying, God, I need you. I need you today. And yes, I know that there's clinical depression and anxiety. I'm not talking about that. But it's that day-to-day -day stuff that we al allow ourselves to think, I am in control. We're not. God is. So are we humbling ourselves? <laughs> are we seeking God? You know, the first thing that we can learn from Chronicles is that the proper position in prosperity, it's humility. That's how we live life well. And if you're asking, how do I humble myself or stay humble? Pray. Like Pastor Paul said last week, God, teach me to number my days so that I may live life well. Psalm 90. You know, look, this has been my prayer recently. God, I need you. I need you every day. I need you every moment. I need you. Or a prayer that I learned from my mentor way back in the day. I love this. It's like, Lord, protect me from me. I'm the one who gets prideful. Protect me from me. In your grace, protect me from my pride. Start praying and asking God for that humble heart, for that humility. So before I move on, I just want to emphasize something really quick, though. God is good, period. He's always good. He's always loving. He has good plans for you. And also, he is all-knowing. So if he's all-knowing and if he's good, he probably knows that prosperity leads to pride and pride leads to our destruction. So if he's good, wouldn't he maybe want to save us from our pride? In the midst of our prosperity, wouldn't he want to maybe do something to help us stay humble so that we can be connected to him, the source of life, the creator of the universe? So maybe, just maybe, out of God's goodness and his love, 
he may allow a test to come our way so that we stay humble. Sometimes we look at tests and trials and tribulations as evil. I don't think they're evil. You know, Pastor Paul pointed this out a couple weeks ago with the story of Jesus walking on the water. He knew that he was sending them across the Sea of Galilee and into a great storm. But sending them into that great storm saved them from the destruction of pride with the 5,000 men. He knew what he was doing. And it humbled them so that they cried out to Jesus. You know, where, where are our eyes? Maybe a test is presented before us in prosperity so that we may stay connected to him by humbling ourselves. So a quick question, is this evil of God to allow a test into our lives? Does it go back on his character? And I say, no. I think actually it's one of the most loving things he could do. Why? Because it helps us stay humble, connected to God. And is this testing different than temptation? And I want to say, yes, it's different than temptation. Because temp- or testing is put in our lives to help reveal what is in our hearts. Deuteronomy 8, that's why the children of Israel went into the wilderness for 40 years, to test them, see what was in their hearts. But temptation, that's the enemy playing on our sinful desires. James 1 says that the reason you're tempted is because of your sinful nature. Your desires, you're listening to that rather than to God. So does a test, though, I also want to say a test, some of the things you may be going through, you may think, well, is this a test? How can this be good? Is this from God? This is horrible. The other reality is, is that we live in a fallen world, and all of us go through horrible things. And I know God's heart is for us. He loves us. He doesn't desire those things. He never wanted death to happen, but that was the consequence of sin. And the reality is, is we live in a fallen world where sometimes we're victims of what other people have done, their choices, their selfishness, their pride that has taken advantage of us. That's not from God's hand. But God can use that and make it beautiful. He can change those horrible circumstances into something beautiful. He can take us from ashes and make us beautiful. God is good. God is always good, and sometimes he does allow a test to come into our lives. The second point that I want to look at is that if we humble ourselves in testing, we'll live life well. So I want to look at King Jehoshaphat really briefly, and in in chapter 17, verses 3 and the couple of verses following it says the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because of in his early years he walked in the ways of his father David the ways his father David had followed he did not consult the Baals but sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel jumping to verse 6 it says his heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord furthermore he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah you know (laughs) King Jehoshaphat was doing really good stuff he was committed to God and the cool thing is is that when we're committed to God it doesn't just affect us but it affects everyone around us see Jehoshaphat later on he sent out uh, scribes and and officials to teach the people what the law of the Lord said He taught them and showed them what this looked like. And because of that, in verse 9, we read, verse 9 and 10, that the fear of the Lord fell upon all of the nations around them, and there was peace in the land. Jehoshaphat was doing really good. He was walking with the Lord. But then all of a sudden, he comes across a trial, a test. 
And we can ask sometimes when we're walking with God and we're doing really good, we can ask, God, why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? Maybe it's out of God's grace to remind us to stay humble. But what do we do in the midst of that trial? What do we do in the midst of that, temp- or that test? And I think we got to humble ourselves and do what Jehoshaphat did. You know, in verse um. In chapter 20, verse 1, we, we see that after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites and some of the Meunites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. So there, this massive army is coming. He's told this vast army is coming against you. And what was his response? You know, I kind of love it because he's human. He was afraid. It says that he was shaken. He was, he was scared out of his mind. But he did not make decisions based on fear. Yes, he felt those emotions. Emotions aren't bad. They're from God. God feels emotions. But when we start to make decisions based on our emotions, that's when it's bad. Because God says, hey, I don't want you to walk by sight. I want you to walk by faith. I don't want you to walk by your feelings or your emotions, but by my truth, by my word. So what does Jehoshaphat do? Even though he feels this fear, it says that he resolved to pray. He resolved to pray and inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Not only was Jehoshaphat humbling himself, saying, God, I don't have the answers. We're coming to you. But all of the people were coming. What would happen if the church humbled themselves to pray? Can I encourage you guys, come out to prayer and fasting in September? Because I believe God wants to do something. He hears us when we humble ourselves. So the whole nation is together, and they're fasting, and they're praying, and they're seeking God. And then Jehoshaphat stands up, and he prays, and I love his prayer. What he says is, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the, the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. I love how he starts it, and I think this is good for us to hear, because sometimes in our prayer we feel lost. Well, if you feel lost, start out by declaring who God is. Because when we start to focus on how great our God is and how big he is, all of a sudden our problems become very small and minute in comparison to who our God is. Declare who God is. He continues on praying in verse 7, and it says, Oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword or judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir whose territory you wouldn't even allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us now? by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance? Man, I love it. Jehoshaphat not only starts out by declaring who God is, but then he recounts what God has done. God, you brought us out of Egypt, and you gave this to us. This is what you have done. You gave us this. And even when we came out of Egypt and we were passing through these nations, we could have destroyed them, but you said, no, don't. Did you do that? Did you not allow us to destroy them so they could come now and destroy us and kick us out of here? I don't think this is right. 
Jehoshaphat, he's just recounting and saying, look, God, this is what you've done. This is what you've done. This is who you are. And he also, in the middle of there, he reminds God of his promises. That part about the temple, temple is a huge theme in Chronicles. And in that part, when at, in first or second Chronicles, sorry, now I'm blanking, but it's chapter seven, verse 14 of one of the two, when Solomon is dedicating the temple and he prays this amazing prayer of dedication to the Lord and God speaks and he says, if you humble yourselves and cry out to me, I will turn, I will hear, and I will save. I will heal your land. So he is reminding God, you told us if we humble ourselves and we pray to you, you're going to answer us and you're going to save us. Sometimes we need to do that. Why? Why do we need to remind God of his promises? Obviously he knows them. It's for us. As Pastor Paul pointed out a couple of weeks ago as well, prayer changes us. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, this is what God has promised. I can stand firm on these promises. The last little part of his prayer, this is the best. It says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Talk about humility. He acknowledges his need for God. God, we don't know what to do. We've got nothing. I am nothing without you. But my eyes are fixed on you. I'm trusting you. I'm not leaning to my own understanding. God, I'm waiting on you. And that's what they did. In the next verse, it says that all the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, they stood before the Lord. They were waiting for God to speak. For those of us who are going through trials right now, keep praying Pray until the breakthrough. Pray and wait until God speaks. And when he does, it's incredible. Because then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah. And in verse 15, he says, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle isn't yours, but it's God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. And in verse 17, you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. I love that. See, when God speaks, a lot of times he'll remind us of the things that he's done before. Because when he spoke right here, he is reminding them, hey, these are the same words, basically, that I used with Moses. I will use this. I said, hey, in, ver or in Exodus 14, it says, don't be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. You will bring, or the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. He's saying, look, I've done it before. At the Red Sea, when it looked hopeless, I'll do it again. Just watch. Same with jo uh, Joshua. In Joshua 1.5, it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Maybe some of you need to hear that today. That God will go with you wherever you go. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. But what are we supposed to do? We need to stand firm and face the battle. God's not going to do everything for us. He wants to see if we're going to put our money where our mouth is. Are we going to still go out and face the battle? It didn't make sense. If God says that he's going to fight this battle for them, why do we even need to go out? 
but that's what he was requiring, saying, are you actually going to trust me? Go out, stand your positions, and face the battle, but I will fight for you. From that, the next day they get up and they go out, and Jehoshaphat, he stands up, and in verse 21 and 22, it says, after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. As they went out at the head of the army, saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. I love it. Jehoshaphat, he says, you know what? We're going to go out. We're going to obey God. We're going to rely on him. We're going to humble ourselves, trust that he's going uh, to fight the battle for us. And in that, even before we see the fulfillment of his word, we're going to praise him. We are going to praise God. Because when we praise God, God starts to move. When we praise God, even when we don't feel good, even when we don't see the outcome yet, but we praise that he is good and his love endures forever, when we start declaring that, God moves. It releases his power and the breakthrough comes. If you haven't experienced the breakthrough yet, can I encourage you, keep praising. Keep praying to God. Humbling yourself and keep praising him because the breakthrough will come. What do we need to do in order to live life well? In the midst of testing, we need to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves and cry out to God like Jehoshaphat did. Say, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. I'm going to stand and face this battle, and I'm going to praise you no matter what happens. Why? Because God is good, and his love endures forever. Wherever you're at today, whatever trial you're going through, or even if you've been a victim of something, can I encourage you? Praise God. Keep praying because God will turn that, those ashes into beauty and the breakthrough will come. The victory will come. I think this is important for me and for us as a congregation because if we as a church humble ourselves and pray, I think we would see revival. I think we would see reconciliation and restoration. I think we would see miracles. So can we as a church humble ourselves before God Almighty in our prosperity and in our testing because then God will move. Maybe you're asking really quickly though, what if I've already failed? Is it too late for me? I want to say no, not at all. It's not too late for you because our God is such a gracious and awesome God and he loves when we come running back to him. The story of the prodigal son, God is waiting there, ready to run back to you as soon as you turn to come to him. He's running to you already. If you failed, don't despair. And just a couple examples to finish up because we need to know that we, if we walk in humility even in our failure, that's when God will break through and he'll forgive us. You look at David, right? So David uh, messed up huge, 
like in a time of prosperity, when everybody went off to war, he stayed at home. He saw Bathsheba, and he's like, whoa, she's really good looking. He sleeps with her, and then he finds out, oh, wow, she's pregnant, so we got to cover this up. So then he calls Uriah, her husband, back home, and tries to get him drunk and like send him off to sleep with his wife. Well, it doesn't happen because Uriah is actually walking more righteously than David at this point. And so instead of that, so David's like, i got to cover this up. So then he sends Uriah back to battle with the instructions to his commander saying, make sure he dies in battle. Well, in order for Uriah to die in battle, many other people perish. And not only that, but because of his sin, his own son dies. It looks bleak, but instead of being like Uzziah who got angry and more proudful when he was confronted with his sin, instead of that, he humbles himself and he repents and he turns to God. That's what Psalm 51 is all about, about him repenting and praying and asking God. And David is still known as a man after God's own heart. He messed up big time. But God wants to forgive us if we humble ourselves, if we repent, if we come before him and say, God, I'm sorry, I need you. Another example from Second Chronicles is Hezekiah. You know, Hezekiah, he's this great king. He makes all these reforms, and later on in his life, in prosperity, he gets sick. So he comes before God, and he says, God, I'm like, please, I don't know what to do. My eyes are on you. And God heals him and gives him 15 more years. Now, the interesting thing is, though, after the healing, this miraculous healing, all of a sudden, Hezekiah gets prideful. It's like he thinks, I healed myself or something. And in that, then God's wrath comes upon him, God's gracious wrath, to humble himself, because then Hezekiah humbles himself and says, God, I'm sorry, and the wrath of God subsides. You know, God is so gracious. As soon as we repent, he's there to meet us. Will you come before him? If you failed, humble yourselves, turn to him. And lastly, really quick, Manasseh. Manasseh was the worst king in Judah's history. He was the most evil. And at the end of his life, he went into exile. He was taken into captivity. And I love it, though, because God's grace, once again, is given. And it says, in his distress, in Manasseh's distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Maybe you've never known God. Maybe you've never walked with him. Maybe you've never accepted Christ as your savior. You know what? It's never too late. It wasn't too late for Manasseh. He humbled himself and God heard him and he knew that God was, God was real. If you don't know Christ today, don't try to fix your life by yourself. You can't. But he can. If you humble yourself and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to forgive my sin. I need you to make me new. I need you to breathe life into the dead places of my life. He'll hear you. He'll answer. Because that's what he came to do. To give life and life abundantly. If you're struggling, if you failed, humble yourselves. Humble yourself. Pray like Jehoshaphat prayed. Praise the Lord. Come to him. And the way that we can live life well is by humbling ourselves in the midst of prosperity, 
in the midst of testing and in the midst of failure so that we can stay connected to the source of life. He gives us life. If I can ask the worship team to come out, and if you guys just want to stand, we're going to close the service. And I just encourage you, if any of you today are, are being convicted, don't be down on yourself. Don't think, I'm a horrible person. No, you know what? We all struggle with pride. But that conviction, it's God's grace to humble you and bring you back to him. He longs to give you life and life to the full. So just humble yourself and come before him. Pray, cry out to him. I just encourage all of us, if we hear God's voice today, don't harden your hearts, but listen and respond to what he's saying. So with every head bowed this morning, I just ask out of a, an action, a response, a physical response, if you want to humble yourself today, if you're saying, God, I need you, if you're saying, God, I need your humility, help me to humble myself, if that's you today, I just ask, either raise your hands or lay them out and say, God, I need you. And we're going to pray because I believe that as we, his people, start to pray and humble ourselves, then God will hear from heaven. And he will hear us, he will answer us, and he will save us, and he will heal our land. So if you want, just lay out your hands, raise your hands, and we're going to pray this, this prayer of humility. God, we need you. Jesus, we need you. And we thank you, God, that you are a good God, that you are always good, that you are always loving. We thank you for your gracious test that humbles us. God, we come before you and we say we don't have it in control. Lord, anything that I'm holding on to, anything that I'm prideful in, Jesus, show it to me so that I can reveal, or the, so that I can humble myself, so that we can humble ourselves. God, you say that if your people humble your, ourselves and pray and cry out to you, that you will hear and that you will save us and that you will heal our lands. So God, we cry out to you and say, God, can you save us? Save us from our pride and heal our land. Jesus, we pray for our land. We thank you for this nation. And we ask that you would, that you would place, continue to place godly leadership over it. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your forgiveness, for your love, and for your grace. And in Jesus' name we pray.